Hello, welcome to a new episode of the View from the Lab podcast. I'm your host, Andy Woods. In this episode of the 2023-24 academic season, I'm pleased to say we have another fantastic guest lined up for you today to kick off the new term. I was lucky enough to catch up with Dr. Jasper Green this summer to get his views on the wonderful world of science and science education. Jasper is currently an associate professor and head of initial teacher training at the Institute of Education at UCL in London. Jasper has had a significant impact on the world of teaching in the numerous roles he has held in his distinguished career. He has been a science teacher, head of the department, network lead for a large mat, an author of a recent book called Powerful Ideas in Science and How to Teach Them. He is the creator of the respected website, scienceteacher.co.uk. And not only that, but he's also been the science lead for Ofsted between 2020 and 2022. What a CV. I got tired just reading that. There was so much to discuss, so let's not wait any longer. It's time to hear Jasper Green's View from the Lab. Hi, Jasper, and welcome to the View from the Lab podcast. Hi, Andy. Nice to have you today, um, and uh, we're going to have a, a kind of a, a wide-ranging sciencey discussion, I hope, and finding out lots about yourself and also um, your thoughts on the wonderful world of science education. And I would like to start off with talking, or if you could tell me about your early experience of science. Um, you know, what was school science like for you? All right, that's a long time ago now for me, <laughs> uh, and just to say, it's very good to be here. So thanks for having me. Um, what was school science like for me? I definitely remember being uh, somebody who was uh, interested in science from an early age. I remember a project I de- did when I was probably um, 11 or, or 12, and we had the opportunity to um, carry out a project that was of interest um, to you. And I, my dad was a, he was a farmer, he was a pig farmer. And I remember doing a study into weight gain of pigs and I had my own pigs and I, um, (laughs) and I monitored the effect of, I can't actually can't remember it now, uh, but I can remember uh, weighing various amounts of food and then monitoring the gain of, uh, of the pigs. Um, And I also remember investigation into earthworms and soil. So I remember at that sort of age, I was really interested in um, carrying out my own investigations. And then I went uh, on and later, I, didn't, I think I actually found science quite difficult and we were set for, for school science and I was, I think I was in set five out of six. And I struggled to really understand what was going on sometimes. It, it all seemed quite confusing. But I do remember um, one teacher who had a real impact on me and that was my biology teacher, um, Frances Myers. And I think what she did is she she made me feel successful in science. She explained things really well. I mean, I think that was one thing that she did that was um, quite transformatory for me was it made me understand um, the, the the concepts that I were learning I was learning about, and I became really interested. And I started to read read more widely, and from that I think came success, and from success came the belief that actually I could do it, and. Um, my GCSEs were okay, and then I decided to do biology um, A level. I did biology A level, chemistry A level, and history A level. Um, and I always struggled with the maths, but through biology, I actually became quite successful at science um, and started to actually do really well. And I did um, step level biology. Uh, I did um, well in chemistry in the end, although I wasn't predicted to. And I ended up teaching myself um, a module um, that was 
I knew I couldn't do a particular module that was very heavy in, in mathematics at A-level. So I decided I was going to teach myself uh, a module about food technology and food science. It was back in the day where you had a variety of different modules you could do. So I chose to do food science. Um, I remember uh, Mrs. Myers uh, helping me with uh, setting up the actual investigation we had to do as part of that. But that enabled me actually to bypass some of the maths uh, and get uh, a good grade in A-level chemistry. Um, and I think that success in science generally helped me with history. So I, I'm a big believer, actually, the power of education often is in, in making children, students feel successful. And once you feel successful in something, it sort of breeds interest and confidence to go into other areas. Um, and then from then I went on to, to read biology at university. And I was, when you, as you were talking, I was thinking about um, the history element because I thought that's a more unusual combination, I suppose, to have in science than you would expect. Many kind of uh, uh, science routes being more traditional, so you know, it's just chuck maths in there, or let's you know, let's do physics. So I was, I was thinking, and you kind of you kind of alluded to it really, but um, was you know, was doing history more useful to science or was the science more useful in terms of challenging history or, or there wasn't or was there was there no link at all between those can you any reflections about what history gave you in that combination out of interest i think physics for me at that time was was a sort of mysterious world that i just did not understand my you know my, my understanding of maths again was it was very procedural i could sort of carry out various operations but i didn't really know which operations to use when and why so Physics for that reason at that time, although I, I love physics now and I, and I love teaching physics, was something I, I didn't want to pursue. Um, but history was a subject that I did enjoy. I love learning about the stories of the past and it did help me with my, my writing. So when I was at university, a lot of the way that um, biology was assessed, um, but even sort of formative assessment was through essays. And I'd had the experience of of writing um you know essays of a reasonable length and i think you know we might talk about this later but actually the ability to put pen to paper and to write and to to write an argument something that you believe in is really really powerful and i and i know science is slightly different in the way it uses evidence but there are some commonalities um between science and history and i think it, it's really interesting to to compare the disciplines of science and history in that you have these sort of you know key concepts that you return to again and again in both subjects you've also got um some sort of disciplinary ideas ideas about understanding where that evidence came from in both cases you're studying the past often you know history you might be looking at um you know trying to, to think about some of the causes of an event but science you're also thinking about what are the causes um, of event you know why did one substance react with another substance faster so when you think about these subjects they're more similar than you than you actually think although um, how they go about developing knowledge is is different um, I suppose we're able to run experiments and, and other um, types of inquiry but again you know when you start unpacking science and thinking about how scientists actually establish knowledge is much more than than carrying out experiments it's making observations it's maybe looking at um, fossils and artifacts well that starts to be quite similar to history uh, as well so some of these boundaries that we think these subjects are very very different actually um, the more you think about it you realize um, there are some um, commonalities there 
some good links yeah and i, I guess with with history and uh, i was thinking the choo- choosing of evidence i suppose you think uh that sometimes history is is less robust maybe that's the wrong thing to say um but i guess moving with science you choose the experiments you decide to do and that might lead you to in a, down a particular direction so um there is some you know science is not foolproof as we know as, as so we, we make decisions about what evidence we might be looking for which may you know as we've got biases you know lead us in a particular direction um and um that's that's equally a challenge in both subjects i guess in terms of what evidence you seek out uh at a particular time i guess yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and science operates in a context and, you know, deciding what you decide to investigate as a scientist is is affected um, by the period of history that you're working in. You know, whether it's looking at the science of atomic bombs or whether it's looking at whether you um, uh, are getting funding for cancer strokes, um, the funding streams that are available are are not even for each disease. And so therefore that can um, influence what gets investigated and what doesn't. So although in science that we are, I suppose, uh, striving for objective knowledge, it's really important to understand that science happens in a context and that context influence what gets measured and what doesn't get measured and why you might be doing it. Apologies for interrupting this lovely podcast, but I just wanted to tell you about an event uh, which is on the 17th of November 2023. It's between 9.30 and 4, and it's for our GCSE Science teachers. It's going to be called the GCSE Science Symposium. It's a face-to-face event, as I said, with a selection of speakers relevant to our GCSE spec, focusing on different things such as practicals, data analysis, understanding the way our assessments work. There will be opportunities to learn, listen and discuss also be a special guest who's Dr Jasper Green who you're listening to now who will be there as well on the day so we'd love you to come along and join us it's 99 pounds it is right in the heart of London it's an 80 strand and to book your place or a place for someone in your team you need to go to the Professional Development Academy so Pearson Professional Development Academy and that is pdacademy.pearson.com um, and then register and sign in and uh, get your place on that uh, lovely day of science goodness in November. Thanks for listening. I'll let you go back to the podcast. And you obviously uh, still enjoyed your science university, decided to go and do some further research, did a PhD. Um, out of interest, why did you decide to kind of carry on that journey? Because uh, obviously it's a point at which you make a decision and think, oh, well, don't go down this route, don't go down that, that route. What, what, what made you think, I've not finished yet, as it were? I love my degree. I absolutely loved it. I love spending time thinking deeply about science. Uh, evolution was a really important, um, evolutionary biology formed a real underpinning part of my biology degree. And during my degree, I had the opportunity again to, to, to do um, research of our, uh, of research of my choice uh, in the final year. And I was in, um, I was lucky enough to get the opportunity to work down in UCL in a lab where they were, Uh, It was led by um, Dr. Gordon Stewart, and he was interested in working out the function of this protein called stomatin. And this is a protein that you find in red blood cells. There's loads of it in the membranes of red blood cells. But no one really knew what this protein did because you actually found it in other cells beyond red blood cells. And what was interesting is you could um, remove that gene from mice and mice were still absolutely fine. So it, you know, it might suggest that this isn't a particularly important protein, but actually it is important biologically because you find this protein in loads and loads of different organisms. Essentially all life has some form 
um, of this protein. And actually, if you take the human protein and you look at it in bacteria, you find an incredibly close uh, homologue. It's, it's, you know, I can't remember its similarity, but it's, it's startingly simple. You know, you can take the bacterial gene or the bacterial protein, compare it to the human protein. And they're, they're very, very, very similar. And you're like, wow, considering like, you know, you've had, you know, millions, billions of years of evolution. And yet humans have got a protein that it resembles a bacterial protein. So I went into that lab trying to actually do some um, work on RNA, which didn't work. And at that time, there was a program called BLAST. There still is. And it allows you to search um, genomes. So we took the, the human protein sequence, blasted it, and suddenly saw these really close um, matches in bacteria. And what was interesting in bacteria, wherever you have the stomatin gene, right next door to it, you had this other gene, which was called NFED. Um, and so we were like, well, why do these genes always co-occur together in bacteria? And could that be a mechanism? Could studying the bacterial system um, give us some information about what the, the protein might do in bacteria, which then might give some understanding of what the protein does in humans? So that got me really excited. Um, I wrote all of that up. At that point then, I then went into, did my uh, teacher training down at the Institute of Education in London, where I am today. Um, I then taught, but then I always had that sort of, um, I don't know, it was, it was a sort of what you described earlier, that dilemma of, you know, do I teach? Um, do I carry on with my research? What do I do? And, I, and at that point, I was offered a PhD up in York. Um, which was a BBSRC funded PhD, which was, you know, is incredible opportunity to um, do research and be paid to do it as a PhD student, which was studying um, the function of these proteins in rhizobium bacteria. So that's what I did next. So I um, did my teacher training. I, I taught for a year and then I left and did a PhD for four years um, up in York where I tried to work out what this protein does in bacteria. Okay, so kind of you kind of dipped into teaching them, but then back into back into research, and um, it's interesting talking about uh, how motivating choice was, and it reminded me um, linked to link back to your, your book you've recently written uh, about powerful, powerful ideas in science. That within obviously students within schools, there's some element in terms of motivation. How you just described that, whereby if you add an element of choice in something in in certain scenarios, I know that's not always possible, but it can aid um students you know excitement about science i guess so um i guess my question is i suppose it, it is different i guess you think it's more it's more difficult to add choice to, in in the science context because there's so many things to learn so more generally you know what do you think about how much choice students should be given say in that 11 to 16 journey um you know when should it be given um and when when do we need to wait before we give choice to, to students out of interest you know, what's going on in my head now is I'm thinking of all, you know, give give children, adults choice sometimes, and, and that's not helpful. They make the wrong choices. And and you can sometimes just choose to do what you already know. Mm. Um, and a big part of school is actually to transform what pupils know and, and, and essentially introduce them to ideas beyond what they might actually think they, they want to, might be interested in. So I suppose it, it needs to be an informed choice. Um, children, students, adults, they, 
you know, they need to be able to make informed choices. So what do you need to know? What do you need in order to make an informed choice? Well, you need, it's a, I suppose it's about what you know and whether you have sufficient um, prior knowledge in order to make an informed choice. And that can be operationalized really simply, I suppose, when you think about, you know, day-to-day teaching, you can give some choice in the way that uh, a practical is carried out. And I, thinking back to my own teaching, one of my favorite um, practicals I used to do was at the end of teaching in year seven, uh, you might have, uh, I taught about solutions and solubility. You went through all the different ways to separate um, uh, mixtures. And then, you know, one of the sort of lessons towards the end of the unit, students came in and on their desk was a, just a very simple um, plastic pot uh, with a mixture of um, salt and sand and I think iron filings but essentially there was a mixture and it was sealed and it was just very carefully laid out where every student came in and they had their own little pot and the challenge was can you separate this mixture and it was done in a way that there was choice because they were given a, essentially a uh, plastic um, tray of different pieces of apparatus and they could choose how they wanted to do this but the choice was informed because we had covered some of the key techniques of separation prior to that and that choice was incredibly motivating for students because there was some agency in how they did it now choice isn't always beneficial you know giving someone the opportunity to separate a mixture and they don't know how to do that is not going to be motivating because it would just fail you know it's not particularly motivating trying to do something that you can't do so it's trying to get that sweet spot where there is sufficient knowledge but it's not perhaps complete and i think sometimes we we do forget that when students are actually doing things and carrying out practical work they will also learn from doing that so it's not about students can only learn what they've been told they are actually able to learn by doing things and carrying out practical activity. But in order for that learning to happen, there must be a sufficient amount of prior knowledge um, and interest um, already sort of uh, established. Because you know what you pay attention to as a student or as an adult is very much dependent on what you know and what you're thinking about. Yeah, and get, getting that challenge right, I guess, in terms of, yeah, as you said, you're talking about the sweet spot is, is the most <laughs> the most difficult thing to do yeah. in terms of, have the, have the uh, students, however old they may be, whether they're adults or what have you, is it, is it the right amount of challenge that makes it, um, uh, you know, possible for the, for the, for the students, to get, I guess, in terms of, in terms of that? And um, it made me think about, for, so for that particular challenge, kind of a, from um, an old teacher question, did you let them just get on with it? Or did you say, oh, we've got to write your plan down and I want you to draw me a diagram of um, X, Y, Z? How did you approach it? Because when I imagine that scenario back in the class, I used to teach, I think, well, some people just like go for it and they'd like, you know, start um, turning taps on. And uh, how um, uh, how much control did you impose in this, as a teacher in those kind of scenarios? Did you, fit, or was that different per class? I think it is different per class and it will be different maybe for the time of day. Mm. Um, what I think is really important is you make the outcome clear okay. so, so that um, you, I remember having a really clear, I think each student also had a piece of paper where there were three circles on it, one labeled iron, one labeled sand, one labeled salt. So it, from the beginning, everyone 
in that room was clear on what the outcome should be. And I think for all practical work, that is absolutely um, essential. And, you know, thinking about how you frame um, science teaching so that, or, or practical work, so that the, so the outcome is clear using things like context. I remember, uh, you know, it sounds a bit, it, it, it sounds a bit uninspiring reflecting on it now, but I remember thinking about there was a practical to make copper hydroxide and, um, I need to probably check the science on this now, but I think copper hydroxide was used as an antifungicide um, for uh, vineyards. So people who worked in vineyards, they used to get this mold. They sprayed copper hydroxide on it, which killed the mold. So rather than just saying today we're going to make copper hydroxide, which feels very abstract, there is a sense of, you know, today we're going to create something that's that, that we can then use to um, uh, kill uh fungi that, that grow on plants it just provides a bit of narrative and a bit of context and the purpose of the, the context is to scaffold and provide meaning to this weird stuff you know copper hydroxide is, is totally abstract mm. you know killing fungi on um grapevines is still quite abstract but it, it's it's starting to make it a little bit more concrete um so yeah i think it you know whenever you give choice it is all about it needs to be an informed choice it's about um, trying to scaffold that so thinking about the curriculum is hugely important here because you know often what can happen is you might walk into a into a lesson and you see everybody um beautifully separating a mixture and you think oh that, that lesson must have been brilliant but actually it's not about that one lesson it's about what's happened prior to that so that you know the week the month the year so that actually the level of control that, that the student that a teacher might need is um is is less and, and actually there can be quite a lot of freedom in those open activities because there has been certain amount of structure up to that point yeah, and I, I kind of, I kind of quite like that model because it makes you think about well, how could, you know, say even at key stage three, how could you, in a sense, motivate kids saying, "Oh, this is the challenge." Almost like the first lesson, you could say, "This is what we're going to do at the end of this unit." Okay, this we're going to look at this. Uh, don't want really to think about it for the minute because we're going to look at some some skills to to work towards that, and then you know propose the challenge over two three lessons if you've got time to do that. Uh, but it also made me think about the way work works best in a sense that here is the defined outcome your boss wants do they trust you to try and solve that problem to get that predefined outcome but in a way that you choose that is most effective and efficient for you to do that task i guess in terms of um whatever it might be that they, they, they've set you as a challenge and whatever the you know the school's goals or the company's goals are so it's quite interesting in terms of because often in reports they talk about that level of autonomy um with and to be honest, I suppose the the trust to make some mistakes along the way, as long as it's clear that by this stage this needs to have you know this yeah. needs, this is the outcome and this is how we're going to likely to judge it. So you might have said, you know, the, the best groups. I don't know if you may have not you know, might most, there's definitely three grams of sand in there because we measured it. You know, whatever it might be, you know, and and you could get get some kind of degree of um, quality uh, bake off kind of you know uh, I, I guess in terms of quality in, in those kind of challenges but they're challenges that are also interesting and a, an ability to make mistakes and maybe um uh yeah learn along the way with with knowledge you've got but having that 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 choice to to do it in your own way uh, and that might be in two steps it might be in 20 steps i guess yeah and i think you know if you think about um 
learning objectives, learning outcomes, sharing those at the at the beginning of a lesson became quite a sort of like mainstay of you know in order for a lesson to be classed as good, whatever that means, it must you must share your objective beginning lesson. Now I I believe that it's absolutely essential that the teacher is really clear on what they want students to learn, even though that we accept students will learn different things. But actually sharing these long complex objectives at the beginning of of, of a lesson, I think is often highly problematic because it doesn't make sense to the students because they haven't learned these concepts yet. So to, to, to say, oh, today we're going to learn about, um, I don't know, the, you know, the, the difference between a solute and a solvent and a solution, I think that might be helpful to a little bit, but actually it's all very abstract. And I think one way you can do that is sort of what you said, which is you start the lesson with a particular observation. It might be um, just interesting. It might be discre a discrepant event. It might be showing um, one substance dissolving in another, but not, you know, you could take salt, dissolve it in water. You could then show salt not dissolving in oil. You know, you could set the problem up. By the end of this lesson, we're going to be able to explain um, why we're observing these differences. That suddenly becomes much more tangible. It's quick. Um, you're operationalizing what the purpose of the lesson is about, and it makes sense to students. And then you can come back at the end of the lesson and or the end of the, the week or the end of the month and return to that. Um, I would say with challenges, and I've done this myself, I remember I used to sort of get students to weigh how much um, salt, for example, they made and they could calculate percentage yield. Uh, and that, that again, was quite motivating, but you ended up a lot of discussion around um, competition about how, who had the most salt. And you started to move away from what it was you wanted students to learn, which was really around the concepts of um, maybe solubility. But I think it's all about making sure that the, the sense of challenge is around what it is you want students to be focusing on. So if your focus is percentage yield, then it might actually be good to make that a bit of a focus of the challenge because you want people to be debating whether the percentage yield calculation is is accurate or not or um, has been done unfairly. Yeah, no, lots of um, lots of options, definitely. And um, I was thinking when you were talking about um, that kind of curiosity. Now, I know you've... Um, uh, your website, thescienceteacher.co.uk, is uh, obviously a project of yours that you, I guess, started quite a few years ago now. But um, what was the initial thoughts of that? Because was that to solve a problem in your at your own school could, that you had, or was it was it about you wanting to just share your um, joy of science or thoughts on science? What was the motivation out of interest in terms of setting up that that website? Yeah, interestingly, it's changed quite a lot over the years. So initially, the website I set up. Because when I, during my PhD, I needed to earn a bit more, you know, a bit, bit of extra money. So I thought, well, I'll do some private tuition. So then I thought, okay, but how am I going to find anybody to tutor? So then I created the website. The website was a way for me to find people who I could, um, who were, were looking for a chemistry or biology tutor. And through that, over the couple of years, you know, um, that was a really influential time actually for my own teaching because it was a, an opportunity for me to really develop my subject knowledge for chemistry and biology because teaching one-to-one -one, there is no there's no place to hide and so you know that I was constantly asked lots of questions that challenged my own subject knowledge and made me want to sort of have to dig a bit deeper um, and you know develop as all teachers do throughout their career um, their subject knowledge of, of some of these concepts then I finished my PhD and I returned to teaching and and um, 
I then became really interested in how you help students to understand these really difficult ideas of solubility, electrolysis, um, osmosis, these ideas that you could argue that children don't need to know, students don't need to know that, you know, but actually they are really transformative in seeing the world differently. And I think that's been my motivation throughout all of my science teaching career and also now in initial teacher education is education is a means to, to help people to see the world differently, a different perspective. So how is it you help students to understand these really difficult concepts? Well, you've got to think quite creatively about ways in, way, you know, tasks to scaffold it, tasks to make them think about these concepts. And so I started to, to really enjoy creating these resources and worksheets. And, and then I thought, well, I will upload them. And then I became, it became a bit of a sort of, um, I don't know, I started, you started becoming a bit addicted. I started becoming a bit a bit addicted to making worksheets, putting them up and then seeing people download them and, 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 and valuing them. And then I sort of moved more to actually as head of department, it was a means to try and share some really good practice. So I'd maybe see a lesson where someone's doing a really amazing um, uh, like piece of work. Uh, I'm thinking of a, a really nice practical activity. I'm talking a lot about practical activities today. Um, I do think they are hugely important in science. Um, so are lots of other aspects. But if we stick with this, um, it was a, uh, somebody called Sana Badri who made um, a challenge essentially for students to make from copper sulfate and I think barium hydroxide, the challenge was to make a white precipitate suspended in a colorless solution. And it, it was such a great practical because it allowed the teacher to instantly see whether students had got the answer right or not, because you just wandered around and saw, well, is there a white precipitate floating in a colorless solution? If there was, they'd got it right. And it was, it was something that I wanted to share with everybody and widely. And so I created it and, and uploaded it. And over the years, um, lots of colleagues, friends have created things or I've seen things and then I've put them up. Um, and it's been a great place to just keep a running record of um, pedagogies or aspects I've seen. And then I, for my own development, I started to sort of summarize research, um, share papers I've read. So it's almost like a sort of diary or a catalog of, of all the interesting things I've seen and read in science education. And, and I hope that it's, it's useful for um, anyone teaching, but, but particularly for beginning teachers who are starting out um, teaching science. And you know, one of the most rewarding things I've ever had in my career is when I get emails from individual teachers who say they've used the website, they've used the resource, and they found it incredibly helpful. And thank you. And, you know, people taking the time to do that, I think, is you know a really wonderful thing. And just to receive that is, yeah, it, it, it's a wonderful thing. That's good. And, it's, and you're kind of still maintaining it by the sounds of it and adding bits and pieces as and when, yes? Yeah, I am. When I worked for Ofsted, I had to... Um, I didn't, and I think I probably had to, but I had to stop um, adding anything onto that platform because, uh, you know, it wouldn't be appropriate for um, me to be creating content at that time. And so um, I paused it. Now I'm back um, working in initial teacher education. Yeah, I will absolutely, when I've got time, um, put things on. And if I, even now, if I see something that's really good or I have a, um, I, I saw a demonstration the other day on YouTube where, someone was hanging off 
pieces of spaghetti and they initially hang off just one and then they hang off two and they hang off three. They're trying to do a pull-up on a bar holding spaghetti. And I just suddenly thought, you know, that's a great way to introduce the concept of macroscopic bulk properties of a material being very different from the individual. You know, you could take an individual molecule and it has very, very different properties from when there are hundreds of molecules stuck together. And it made me think, well, that would be a good way to introduce um, bonding and intermolecular forces. Yes, it's, uh, yeah, there's, a, there, there's so much, you know, good content out there. It's almost, uh, sometimes too difficult to choose, there's too much choice uh, to, to find out what is, what the thing is to choose or to, or to, or to try of a class. It's sometimes, uh, yeah, very difficult, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, you know, you could argue I'm making the problem worse because I'm, you know, <laughs> I, I'm creating more content. You know, one of the challenges, you know, science teaching, like all teaching, is full of these 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 sort of these challenges all the time. On one sense, we want um, to be able to find resources that are really good ways of teaching things. The risk is if we go to lots of different places to find resources, you end up breaking up a coherence that you may have planned for in the curriculum. So let's just, in a really simple way, you may have planned your curriculum to, to refer to um, intermolecular forces using a particular language. Um, and then you go off, you find this really great activity on the science teacher, you download it, use it, and the wording it's using are different and the explanations are different from what your curriculum um, has essentially had intended students to learn. And so it can be quite... Um, there's a risk that by getting resources from lots of different places, it starts to sabotage that coherence that the curriculum, that your plan curriculum has tried to, to develop. And so it's just, I think it's about being really careful with the materials that you download, editing them. And I think all of the materials on the science teacher are editable. And the reason for that is you can change them and make them your own and make them fit your class and what your class has previously learned about these ideas that's really really important i think using things simply downloaded and then unedited can become really problematic i remember teaching and you've downloaded this thing and suddenly halfway through the worksheet you know students hit something that that they makes no sense to them and you're like oh no i shouldn't have done that because you know they haven't had sufficient preparation in order to be uh, successful on that task yes definitely um it's making think about um the uh, your journey, I suppose, in terms of going on, going to Ofsted, science science lead for Ofsted. Now I'm, I'm quite intrigued in the sense that um, you, I suppose, you did like quite a relatively young career age, I guess, in terms of maybe I don't know what the history history of it is, but um, from teaching talking to other teachers, they're saying it's unusual that someone had actually done some teaching and, and held a kind of a post like yours uh, in terms of Ofsted. So how did that happen? Did somebody tap you on the shoulder? Did you did you apply for that? Did you seek that out, or what made you kind of move from obviously a school role to you know a different challenge I guess yeah so I was I was working at the Institute of Education at the time as a teaching fellow in in science education and the the unique thing about the job that appealed to me is it was um, being a, a member of the curriculum unit so the new framework had come in the framework had a real focus on curriculum and particularly importantly for me was the subject specificity of it um, so this was moving um, away from ideas of generic skills, um, generic competencies to actually valuing explicitly the importance of subjects. And so there was an opportunity for me to work 
um, in the curriculum unit and lead the, the work that was done on the science research review and the subject report. You know, that, that's a real privilege to be able to put together um, working with colleagues, something that I hope has been um, of use and value to science teachers working in schools where we can shine a spotlight on really important aspects of science education, um, such as practical work, such as demonstrations, such as the importance of practice, such as the importance of subject knowledge, teachers having access to professional development. Those are really important um, things that um, I think an organisation like Ofsted should be um, signposting the, the value of. When I think about kind of obviously, obviously the, the pressure of Ofsted, obviously teachers are always very concerned. I, I, I visit schools and talk to teachers in, in my current role. And um, there seems to be like a switch of, um, there seems to be a slight move away from kind of uh, draconian, for want of better words, ways in which people were observed in lessons and then moving um, towards obviously this, this, this curriculum. And it almost felt that when I was talking, talking to teachers, I was thinking, this, this idea of this in, in, inver, inverted commas intention of the curriculum seemed to, 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 to worry teachers. And my question was, because so much of science is d- defined by the DfE um, and essentially, you know, we're all going towards that, that final aim, I, I, I guess. Um, do you think there would be any um, kind of, would, would it be easy in a sense to define what, the route for the curriculum is for for schools or and what are the advantages of letting them decide the intent of the curriculum um hopefully i've mangled that question too much um no yeah it, it does make sense so you know you know the national curriculum is not a curriculum as i think you know, you're alluding to and it, it just very high level outcomes and um there's a real risk if you just teach those high level outcomes because you miss all of the important building blocks and steps to achieve those aims. You almost sort of like, it's a bit of a sort of bypass. Um, and it leads to problems like gaming. You know, you, you can, you can, um, you can get, get around. There are ways to essentially help students to achieve these high level games without them understanding the building blocks and composite knowledge. Um, because ultimately any assessment can be gained. I think we have to just accept that it's possible to game any assessment. And that's why a curriculum is so important because what it's saying is, look, we're not just focused on the end goal over here. We're focused on making sure that you build really secure knowledge and skills in order to reach that. And that's where I think the school curriculum is key and involving teachers in the curriculum making is absolutely key. So all members of the department, don't view you know are actively involved in developing that curriculum and don't view it as some sort of static thing but that after teaching it there's opportunity maybe very very quick brief brief feedback um as a team about what what were the problematic aspects let's change it for next year let's move where we teach forces let's start let's start year seven with particles not cells because when we teach diffusion actually it's helpful for them to um, or helpful for them to have an understanding of particles prior to that, thinking about substances moving and diffusing in and out of cells. It's those discussions that are the really rich bit. And I think we've got to move away a little bit from seeing curriculum as this sort of defined route that everyone must follow. You know, that's taking it, that's taking the model far too far. 
all children will start at school with different knowledge. They'll have different experiences. They'll move along that trajectory um, in different ways. It doesn't mean that there shouldn't be a plan, but we need to accept that, that there, there is going to be flexibility for each or, or variability for each student as they move along that plan. So for me, a curriculum is about the, the teacher really understanding that model of progression. What does it mean to get better over time um, in your understanding and skills around cells, for example, and then working with the class um, to sort of take them through that model of progression, but not overly limiting it. And I think there's a real risk where um, it becomes so prescriptive that every class in a school must be exactly on the same lesson because there's this view that everyone moves at the same rate. So if we get the rate right, everyone will move. I think that's really problematic. Um, and it's, it's, it's inflexible and it's not how learning happens. Learning is much more messy than that. And I, what I'm trying to say is that we don't want, whilst it's important to map out a clear model of progression in a curriculum, we don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that all students will move along that in a nice linear model, because that leads to lots of unintended consequences. Yeah, it makes me think when you when you talk, I was thinking about it's it's kind of like chromatography on the, on the start line, and obviously you get to your substances moving. You know, at the end of the you know of the curriculum, that they're going to end up at different places without being too prescriptive, because obviously some people start below the line, some people are you know uh, struggling in the sulphur, not even getting to you know towards the uh, the start line. Um, uh, if that uh, that, if that uh, model isn't taking it too too far, yeah. Well, if I use that model, I would say then let's change the solvent. Let's get everyone moving. <laughs> Um, as far as possible, yes. but just recognize that if we constrain learning too much, or if we think everyone is moving through the same, uh, like identical steps, that can lead to overly narrow teaching. And um, I think is is problematic. So it's it's just recognizing that having a road, a curriculum road that maps out what it means to be better, it doesn't mean that everyone needs to exactly follow that model. You've convinced me, I think. Okay. I'll work on it. In terms of a kind of a thing that I, often I found as a teacher and also, I still, you know, still I say speak to teachers a lot, is the pro- problem, it seems to me, in definitely in England, but probably in other countries around the world, of school performance tables driving, being the biggest driver for any decision that is made about not just science, but schools generally. Um, and I don't, know, I don't know if you had any thoughts, um, obviously not in Ofsted anymore, so <laughs> about what extent do you think these types of figures help teachers or students, um, if that's not too difficult to answer? <laughs> I think it's it's how they're used. They obviously tell you something about a school, um, and I think achievement, as I said right at the start, is is really really important. You know, students have to feel successful and be successful. So performance measures that um, indicate that a school has performed really well in external assessments. Um, has a value, but it's about understanding what that performance relates to. And I think, as I mentioned this earlier, any high stakes thing can be gamed. And we've that that's been seen over the years um, with removing students from um, uh, certain GCSEs. Um, 
putting students in prematurely for GCSEs, maybe focusing over focus on exam content, um, on sorry, on exam questions. So it's about how that um, performance um, that, that's being measured was achieved. And I think that's where it's important to actually play the long game and think about curriculum and really high quality pedagogy um, and really high quality professional development. Because what you'll see is if you can game the system so far so that you can have, um, and certainly I've seen that throughout my career, that it is possible to um, game the system at one level, but it's very hard for you to continue to game. And what I mean by that is you could, for example, have high GCSE results in science. It's very hard to have high GCSE results in science. When I say high results, let's talk about progress, but then see that progress carried forward into A-level because that's really hard. What that says, if you were able to carry the progress in at GCSE all the way into A-level, that actually you are building firm foundations so that students who achieve well at GCSE have the, the sort of foundational knowledge, knowledge of concepts, knowledge of skills, knowledge of science, to be able to take it forward into A-level and continue to be successful. So are they, you know, and it comes down to leadership, this, because, you know, there are loads and loads of brave leaders out there who say that we're going to do what's right um, for the students and play the long game, which means that over time, yes, results will become will become good um, and that will be sustained into A-level. But there is always the risk that you may choose to actually take the, sh the easier, not, not necessarily easier, but the different route. And in my in my view, the the wrong route, which is to um, game the results. So you game the results at GCSE by over-focusing on exam questions, narrowing the curriculum, um, you know, re removing how many sciences students teach, um, students learn. So in of themselves, I, they are, you know, it, it's about how they are used. And maybe that's a bit nuanced and maybe that's sort of a bit couched, but, you know, I think it gives, you know, th these these metrics, it's what sits beneath them that, that really needs to be explored. Uh, like all data, you know, you can have um, high progress eight scores and you dig into that and it's based on really rich, um, ambitious curricula where students are, um, you know, making good progress over time and they're able to maintain that into A-level because they've actually understood what they've been learning about. And you can have high progress eight schools um, where perhaps that is built on um, less solid for, uh, foundations of, of the subjects that are being studied. The other thing I, I, I kind of reflect of in, in terms of science as, as a subject is uh, that, that what I always felt as a teacher was that English and maths, and it's true, true in terms of progress eight, in terms of the weighting they're given, and the fact that um, my students, my lower attaining students, didn't have to retake science at uh, college or you know in sick form. So I, I, I taught in you know, different different uh, you know, eleven sixteen schools, eleven to eighteen schools as well. Um, any thoughts about that reducing the um, I guess status of science because there's no there's no need to retake science in any way, but there's a feeling definitely 
that you need to retake maths, you need to retake English, but actually science, don't worry about that. Um, And that has has a slight effect for certain types of students that, well, why should I try that hard? Because actually there's no, there's no going to be outcome for that, you know, for that type of student, I guess. And, And does it, does it make a difference? Should it, should there be some element of, of, uh, basic requirement for people to understand science to move into the world of work any thoughts on on, on that uh, well i hope they have a, a basic understanding of science because they've been in school for a long time i would hope that, too. <laughs> I hope that too so i think i don't think the solution is to um, think about resitting and retaking okay. i think the solution is to think about how to strengthen and improve the science education that the children have starting all the way back in in the, their, their early years um, and how that is developed in primary and secondary. You know, children learn science for a long time. And so we have to ask ourselves some fundamental questions. If students are getting to the end of age 16 and they don't, um, they don't know um, or understand the science that they've, they've been studying for, for, for a long, long time. So in the next few years, we are likely to be moving towards you know, things changing, governments may change, etc. Obviously, the, the the shifting sands of education are constantly, uh, constantly moving. Um, have you got any thoughts on the way that that 14 to 60, obviously GCSE uh, qualifications um, may change? And is there anything you would particularly like to see next time when um, the DfF are considering the options for, um, you know, those GCSE exams? Any thoughts on that? It would be helpful to reduce some of the content okay. um, to give uh, teachers a bit more time to just go in depth into some of the the areas of the curriculum. And, and I also think greater opportunity f- and time for students to actually engage in long, in practical work that goes beyond, you know, a, a lesson. Um, I think there needs to be some stability. I, we try to reform our way out of things sometimes, but I think if we go back to the essentials of science education, it is about students experiencing um, uh, and make you know experiencing an ambitious curriculum and making sense of it. And so, you know, the concepts of science cells, forces, um, magnetism, um, entropy, equilibria—they haven't really changed much. And what our focus needs to be on is around making sure that students actually understand these concepts and they can think about them. You know, they can use them in their minds and they can think about them in relation to important topics such as, you know, thinking about climate change, for example, sustainability, thinking about our impact on the environment. All of, you know, to think about those aspects meaningfully requires a real in-depth knowledge um, of the concepts. Now, when you learn about combustion, um, it makes no sense to talk about combustion without talking about carbon dioxide, without talking about the effects of carbon dioxide. Science is linked to um, the, the, the key um, issues in the real world, and it's about making those links explicit, but not losing sight of the science and remembering that actually the reason we have a science education is those con- those scientific concepts. They are the things that we need to prize. Um, and they are the things that we really need to work hard at helping sure that students um, understand and make sense of. Because I think 
and the research supports this, that for many students, science still remains a fragmented, um, disconnected group of ideas. The, the other things um, I think I would like to see is just a broader understanding or conceptualization of how scientists work. And I think it's still too narrow and too, and still too focused on experimentation in terms of like the, the, the fair test idea. And I think when you actually think of any famous scientist, it's very hard to actually think of those that actually did that type of science. There's a lot of actual synthesis. There's a lot of observation. There's lots of making up Petri dishes um, over and over and over again and adding one treatment uh, and observing what happens as opposed to a, a controlled test. I'm thinking back to my own PhD when I talked about Petri dishes. I must have made millions of them, um, <laughs> but it wasn't in the classical sense of a fair test. No, it's kind of, um, yeah, it's definitely, yeah, it's a common theme in terms of, you know, a, a content being, you know, a challenge for teachers at the moment. I mean, maybe they also think about, so in your book, you, you've, I hope I've got the number right, you had 13 ideas, powerful ideas of science. Yeah, we did. It was 13. So out of interest, did, how did you think about that? How did you... Did you have a kind of criteria or did you just have a feeling about what these could be? Um, it would have been convenient, I suppose, to have five each in biology, chemistry and physics, wouldn't it? Um, uh, I'm not saying there should be, but how did you think about trying to slim those down? Was that quite an intense intellectual exercise? And was it something you just decided yourself? Or was it, did you have debates with people about whether it should be, obviously it's your book, you decide, you know, but did you did you seek counsel on these these ideas? Yeah, it's a good question. I went, it took a long time to refine these. I was really trying to establish what are the the sort of the key, if you could imagine scientific ideas as lenses that you could sort of pop in front of you and they transform how you see the world. And, you know, let imagine we're looking at a picture of um, an African savanna and you're just looking at it. You know, what perspective can science bring to that? Well, you could obviously slot in the lens for um, evolutionary biology and you could start to think about how all these organisms evolved and why they look different you could you know you could then think about um, what these um, organisms and plants and species are made from thinking about particles um, you could think about you know how how water holds together and how it rises up some of the, the plants so there's there's you can then think about disease and the spread of disease so there's there's loads of things you can um think about from a scientific perspective so i was trying to establish what were the key lenses then they needed to be sufficiently relevant to the national curriculum um, because i wanted this book to be useful i wanted it to be a way um, of thinking about helping teachers to help students to connect all this knowledge and think about it as a curriculum almost these a, a powerful idea is a strand that runs through your curriculum. So you can continue to return to the same idea over and over again, but in progressively more sophisticated ways. So, you know, when I was head of science, I remember, you know, trying to do um, a, a bit of a sort of project where we would ask students in year seven a question. Um, so we might ask them, trying to, I'm just going to have a look at. Uh, Let's take the question, why are offspring similar but not identical to their parents? You could ask that to a year seven. You could ask that to a year 13. And how does their answer to that same question get progressively more sophisticated? Um, and you can think about that in terms of their response, but you can also think about that in terms of the curriculum. The key starting point was Lynn Harlan. I've always been really captured by it. She um, published a, 
um, the big ideas of science and big ideas about science. And I, and that was a starting point. And then I tweaked some of those where I thought they could be improved. And I ungrouped some ideas in physics because I felt they were mixing together what seemed to be quite conceptually distinct areas. Um, Paul Nurse had written a, a really useful paper on um, powerful, well, not powerful ideas, but key ideas in biology. And there was another key paper by Gillespie called The Great Ideas of Chemistry, which informed it as well. Um, but I wanted them to be ideas that were transformatory. So if you got that idea, you started to see the world a bit differently. I see. Okay. And um, moving on to the final few questions now, some big questions for you, uh, Jasper. My first one is... Um, how do we raise the status of science teaching in UK, I guess we say England, UK, um, because obviously at the time of recording, and it'll probably be the same next year, there is a big challenge in terms of recruiting and retaining science teachers. Um, so uh, any thoughts on that? I think initial teacher education is key. So those initial years, um, well, if we take the first year, doing everything we can to sort of share key ideas, key literature, um, key practices to support beginning teachers who are going into schools to, it's not just about teaching well during your, um, you know, your training year, it's about laying the foundations and sort of, you know, I think about it as a sort of, um, you know, you, you start, you, you're, you're creating a sort of the, the fire to, to, to fuel and to, to, to carry that teacher forward throughout their career. And to do that, you've got to sort of light some, some interest around, you know, that, that, teaching is a, is, is an intellectual, um, activity. You know, you need to really enjoy um, and engage with some of the, the key literature that's out there. And you need to have agency in what you're doing. And, and you need to love your subject and be passionate about that. And so trying to get that um, first year right so that you lay some of the grounds of that to carry teachers through during what can be some, you know, um, really rewarding but also challenging times. Is there any, I mean, does, obviously we've had uh, teacher disputes this, this year in terms of um, things like salaries. Is that part of that picture or is it only, you know, obviously two people haven't gone into teaching knowing, you know, that, that, that it's not like working in the city of, city of London, of course. But um, um, do you feel there's, there was been an erosion of that over, you know, I know t last 10 years, I guess, we, that we um, any thoughts on that in terms of the status? Does it, do you think it makes a big enough difference or is it more, I say, the internal, if teachers are feeling happier in their day-to-day -day kind of lives, um, status is not, not important, I guess, not as important. I think it's, I think it's about ensuring that the work teachers do is meaningful um, and motivate. Yes, you know, money helps for sure. But actually, I think what's why you might choose to leave teaching is that you start to see your work as um, not valuable. You're being asked to do things that don't see that don't seem purposeful, that don't actually make the job of teaching um, 
that don't actually help students. You know, you you, you might be asked to do things that you feel um, sort of aren't aligned to why you joined the profession in the first place. In it's about and so it's about it's about culture in a school. It's about having a culture of professional learning. It's about teachers, science teachers working together, sharing ideas, enjoying the, the, the work of teaching science. And if things get in the way of that, then I, I, I do think that that's, that's um, why some teachers choose to, to, to leave. There's, a, there's an important thing, I think, in science, particularly to science, is that many teachers are teaching outside of their specialism and that imposes an additional load. So when there are new teachers joining the profession, it's about creating timetables that are sympathetic in the sense that they recognise that someone hasn't had the chance to get become expert in all areas. And actually, they may benefit from teaching a smaller number of age groups, maybe teaching um, a particular age group twice, so have two year seven classes, so that you yourself can feel that you are trying things out and getting better. And that there has to be sufficient agency and autonomy for teachers that they, you know, that they feel that they can um, try things out that, and um, they're not, it, it doesn't feel like they are prescriptive. It, it's not overly prescriptive. And that, for example, they can only teach from a particular um, PowerPoint. That doesn't, that's not to say that you can't give, um, teachers uh, resources and provide them with a really strong starting point but it's about teachers feeling that they have sufficient agency with those resources and how that's achieved I think can be done in lots of different ways but there must be that feeling of agency otherwise um, it's not it, it ceases to become a really enjoyable profession mm. yeah and it becomes I guess feels more robotic which which links to my my, my penultimate question possibly because uh Every podcast I listen to is talking about artificial intelligence and AI, and uh, uh, obviously we're at the you know the cusp of a massive revolution in, in that, and and challenges for all areas of life, um, and of course education is not um, uh, you know immune immune to that. Any kind of broad thoughts about AI and impacts, whether it be positive or negative, going forward in terms of uh, science education or education generally? You know, I think what AI AI is interesting in that you start to think about what is it that AI can't do? Um, and I know what it can't do now is going to be different from what it can do in the future. Mm. Um, but what does it mean to be human? I think that's a really interesting question, you know, and, and what does it mean to be human and think about science? And, you know, some of it is around emotion. You know, AI doesn't feel emotion, but actually when you learn scientific ideas, Hopefully, some of these feel quite um, emotional in terms of the surprise you might experience. So I do think there's something around trying to, to, to think hard about what are the things that are unique to a human learning science and how is that different from an AI? Um, because those might be the things we want to accentuate in terms of um teaching science and, and learning science. I think it has it will have massive um, advantages for teachers in terms of creating 
um, resources and hopefully reducing workload and multiple choice questions. I had a go at, you know, can it create a multiple choice question? And it can, and it wasn't too bad at all. So there's lots of advantages there. Um, it's just about um, learning how to use it. In the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the right way, yes. And um, my final question is going to be, uh, Jasper, a question I asked to many of my guests, which is, um, obviously, your book is an excellent book, and I would, I would uh, definitely recommend people re- read that. Um, are there any, say, let's just pick a number, say three, in terms of science education, where would you recommend people go if they're, I suppose, A, hovering over a PGC application form in terms of, or a, a you know, or, or, or a skit, um, a training form in terms of thinking about science education, thinking about uh, giving teaching a go. Can you, th- what are the books that pop into your mind to think, well, actually that is a book I wish I'd read or, or, or is a good book to, re- to read in terms of preparation and nothing prepares you for the actual teaching as it were, um, because that's always, you know, there's theory and uh, there's practice and there's, there's, a, there's a big gap between those two things. But any thoughts on things that you would you, you speak to your, maybe your students about in terms of preparing themselves um, for the glorious world of uh, um, science education? I think Rosalind Driver's work on misconceptions is still, for me, very um, informative. Not necessarily that. You know, I think the science education has moved on quite a lot in terms of how we think about misconceptions and the importance of um, thinking about them as, you know, the importance of thinking about suppression. Actually, what we a lot of what you need to overcome misconceptions is actually just to suppress the misconception as opposed to totally get rid of it. And actually, many things we think of misconceptions are not so deeply held and, and may just stem from the fact that students haven't got anything better to say in terms of their prior knowledge. But saying all of that, what Rosalind Driver's work does is it gives you a window into how children see the world in terms of their naive ideas. And great science teaching has to recognize that um, and have have always at the back of their mind, what is it that students are likely to be thinking now? Because the danger is that we think, oh, we've explained something really clearly um, and therefore they will have in, they will have, have sort of almost internalized that clarity. And actually what's going on in the mind is totally um, different from what you were thinking. And I think reading Rosalind Driver's work, you get a window into the into that. I think one, one person who's informed my thinking quite a bit um, is Alex uh, Johnston, who worked at the University of Glasgow. He's written a lot about chemistry education, um, thinking about it from a sort of information processing model. And I think he came up with the idea with the Johnston triangle, thinking about in chemistry, when we we think about any concept, um, we can think about it in terms of um, the macroscopic, the submicroscopic or the symbolic. And I think that's a really helpful um, way of, or it's just a helpful um, tool to, to consider when teaching an idea such as a mole in that you can think about a mole as a sort of stuff you can see, you can think of it as a, as a number, or you can think of it in terms of the number of submicroscopic particles. You need to be clear about what it is you are referring to when you use the term. Um, he wrote a paper which I um, drew upon quite a bit in my book where he talked about why is science difficult to learn, things are seldom what they seem. And I really enjoy this article, and I know it can be problematic to consider science as being something that's difficult to learn. But I think it's important to recognize that actually many of the properties of scientific knowledge do make it difficult 
to learn. For example, it's abstract, it's often counterintuitive, it exists on these many different levels. Um, but there's a slight paradox here in terms of that actually, yes, it is difficult um, to learn, but that's what makes it really exciting to teach and, and rewarding to learn because as teachers, you, you can change how children and students see the world by introducing these concepts. This way of thinking is just so dramatically different from their, from their, every way, from their everyday thinking. And I think that's what makes um, science teaching such a, a wonderful um, job in, in that very few teachers get to change the way students think so dramatically. And def uh, I, I completely agree with you about yeah the difficulties of when I think about you know when I teach chemistry and I, perhaps not being explicit about that and being this is what I see this is what the particles might look like this is how I might describe it in an equation with letters and I think that the more you do that it's 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 easy I said those transitions are difficult because as an expert you jump between them with with little you know with great ease but perhaps and. Uh, it's, it's just getting back into that learn, learner mindset. And I think anything that kind of reminds people about that in terms of, as, as you said, you know, um, what is in people's mind is not what is, you know, what, what is, what is, sorry, what is, uh, what's the old phrase? Um, what is taught is not always what is learned or what, or what have you. Um, and, and constantly thinking about what is in, you know, the student's mind, however old they might be, is really, really powerful. And, and reflecting on that makes um makes, as you say, challenging, but um, uh, in intellectually interesting activity for, for science teachers to, to, to kind of uh, um, partake in. Um, and that was my last question. Any final thoughts, Jasper, before we head off into the, uh, the podcast sunset? In different directions, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. I think yeah, it's been really, um, I've enjoyed thinking about and reflecting upon um, my journey in science education but um, thank you very much and I hope anyone listening to this um, who is a science teacher uh, has found um, some of the ideas useful and I suppose I want to say um, yeah big shout out to all science teachers and heads of science out there um, what you do is a just a hugely hugely important job Thank you very much for your time today, Jasper, and I wish you luck in the recruitment drive for the next uh, the next year. Thank you very much for our conversation today. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed my chat with Dr. Jasper Green today. I think you'll agree he is a true science hero in the education sector and will continue to make an impact for many years to come. I do encourage any science teachers out there to check out his book and website as they are both useful resources for new and experienced teachers alike. They're great sources of information to help you reflect on how you plan your science curriculum in your school or college. Do you have any suggestions of who we should have on the podcast this academic year? Please do send your suggestions to andy.woods at pearson.com. I always reply to every email. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you on the next one.